Welcome to the second episode of Marketing Futures, a series of the C-Suite podcast that we're producing in partnership with SAP. Last time, we discussed the future of retail and direct-to-consumer. Today, we are focusing on MarTech innovation and efficiency, the challenges that brands face to engage the customers of today and the tools and strategies they'll need to win and retain the customers of tomorrow. This engagement between customer and company, whether B2B or B2C, is a key reason why companies spent $1.4 trillion on digital transformation efforts in 2020. That's according to IDC's Worldwide Digital Transformation Spending Guide. Today, we'll examine why brands are doing this and what it means for their future success. My name is Graham Barrett, and I'm thrilled to introduce our expert panel who will mull over these issues and provide us with their unique insights and perspectives. I'm joined by Joe Harper, e-commerce marketing manager, Western Europe at Kellogg Company, Shekhar Sharan Mishra, head of e-commerce spa in India, and Sarah Richter, CMO at Amasis. Welcome to you all. Joe, let's get the Kellogg's take on this to begin with. How challenging is it to turn a box of, say, crunchy nut cornflakes that we see on a supermarket shelf onto a digital shelf that people can interact with and purchase online? Thank you for having me, firstly. It's complex, as I'm sure most people who will listen to this call will know. So we're great at making food. We know how to design brands and packaging. Uh, and we can get a case of food delivered to a supermarket distribution center ready for start of shipment most of the time. You essentially have three elements there. When you want to digitalize that product, it becomes more like 200 elements, each coming from a different source within our business. The growth of e-commerce and the increased sophistication of our retailers is basically increasing the volume of those elements, the veracity and the speed that we need them to be organized and ready for shipment. When you throw in the fact that every market in Europe needs their own version of that data and has their own route to the retailer's website, it becomes an incredibly complex and resource-heavy project. However, despite being one of the most complex projects I've worked on, it's probably one of my most enjoyable projects as well because you include and involve so many different stakeholders around the Kellogg's business. And that's the key to e-commerce, right? It's no longer a silo. It's no longer a bolt-on. It involves everyone within this great big company that we work for. And digital shelf syndication is the most important project for that. So I really enjoy it. Highly complex, as you say. Shekhar, let's turn to you. Spar operates 24 stores across nine cities in India. What trends have you noticed over the past couple of years? And what are the unique challenges that you face as, as head of e-commerce? I think it's it's really complex. And, and if you look at it, e-commerce is definitely not working in a silo. It's a part of the integrated strategy of the central management, if I must add that. Specifically in India, if I talk about you know e-commerce, Things have changed post-COVID, especially from 20th of March, 2020, when it hit us. And we have seen a tremendous change in the customer behavior. People have migrated from offline shopping to more online or omni shopping. That also means more repeats for the brands because generally in online e-commerce, the frequency is higher as compared to that of offline. With respect to the challenges, I would list out five challenges that we are facing. The very first one is definitely profitability. Given the marketing costs, the logistics cost, which are the two major costs, and the thin margin in grocery specifically, which I handle, it becomes difficult for the companies to become profitable and make a financial sense at the PL level. However, as a consolidated strategy, I, I look at it as an extension of the sales sum of the offline business eventually. 
The second one is attracting newcomers and driving repeats, primarily because competition has intensified. Everybody is now just pouncing on an opportunity that they can get to serve the market. And staying relevant has become difficult because a single USP is served by maybe three or four or more companies, right? And you have to really uh, be on your foot to differentiate yourself from the rest. The third uh, challenge would be ERP integration in terms of the live inventory viewing. You have three kinds of goods, fast moving, slow moving, and non-moving. Specifically with respect to availability of the more popular goods, which is fast and partly slow, you need to have a live visibility towards the inventory. And hence, this ERP integration becomes important in the modern context, even for the offline players. The fifth one is customer convenience. It's also about customizing customer experience overall. With online setting off, we really have a lot of data to consume. And, and we need AI, we need ML, we need big data analytics to really be able to deliver customized experience to the end customer. So that's definitely a challenge which companies are grappling with right now. And fifth one is very specific to the domain that I work in. India is a country of multiple languages. So catering to localization also becomes important here. For example, you call Ladyfinger Okra, Bhindi in Hindi. So people just search in the local language and it really becomes difficult if uh, to, to sell if you're not throwing out the relevant results. I would definitely in the Indian context assume that to be a fifth biggest challenge that we are facing as of now. However, things are looking rosy from here. We are on the right track and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to solve out these problems in the next one or one and a half years through product innovation and tech roadmap. Yeah, really interesting stuff there, Shekhar, especially with the different languages in India, I guess, you know, we think about that across different territories. But of course, within India, that becomes a huge challenge as well. What about during this this era we find ourselves in, this this COVID era? How have uh, your customers' expectations changed during this time? Customers are right now spoiled for choices, frankly, and they really want everything now. What earlier was maybe luxury has become hygiene right now, right? And uh, if you look at it, Specifically to my market, quality aligned with value for money is something that the customers are definitely wanting. And uh, they also expect to be connected across all touch points. By that, I mean, let's say if somebody has shopped online and you have an offline store, they expect the offline store also to have data about the online behavior that, that they have. So the best things range from best prices best quality, best packaging. They want the fastest delivery times. In fact, there's a, there's a rise of Q-commerce in India in the likes of Zepto, recently Blinkit as well, wherein people are getting deliveries within 10 minutes, right? They, they spend around two minutes packaging and eight minutes delivering on an average. Uh, having said that, there is also a separate segment which is money for value, which is more convenience-based and not very price-focused or deep discounters. And they are ready to pay that price in order to buy that convenience. And that value can range from quality to delivery time to maybe packaging and the entire experience. Yeah, thanks, Shekhar. That, that's really interesting stuff. Joe, I'll come to come, come to you in a second to talk about your customers' expectations. Sarah, I don't know if I could just turn to you at this point. It'd be great to get you involved in the conversation. From your perspective at Amarsis, what challenges do marketers face in today's climate? To pick up on what Shekhar was saying. Well, I think Shakar and both Joe have alluded to the fact that there are a multitude of challenges facing marketers. It's both exciting and challenging time to, to be in marketing. I think one of the things that illuminates it for me is if you look at some stats that were released by Gartner recently, the average marketing budget has actually dropped since 2020. In 2020, it was an average of 11% of revenue. 
2021, we're down to 6% of revenue, which is a record low. But as Joe and Shakar have also alluded to, that hasn't changed workloads. Workloads have actually gone up. There's more work coming house. Joe talked about things being resource intensive. There's more pressure on marketing teams to deliver business results as customers have pivoted to the different ways of shopping that um, that Shakar was alluding to. And I think as Shakar also touched on, the challenge is marketeers are also expected not just to be marketeers. They're also expected to understand the customer journey, the customer experience, and actually activate all the data that goes with that. So there's a lot of pressure on marketeers to do a lot of quite creative, important things at the moment. Sure. And obviously, this uh, conversation is about MarTech in particular. How crucial is that in being able to, to meet all of these challenges? Well, if you look at all of these challenges, they sum up in one way. Time is the thing that becomes critical. All of these are making marketers' time so much more valuable because they have so much less of it. So where MarTech comes to play, it can empower you. It can empower you by freeing up your time and having a real business impact. But that only works if you use it correctly. We did some research recently that showed that 41% of marketers actually lose time because they're switching frantically between different MarTech systems. And 35% really sadly feel they're just wasting time with this technology that can actually be their savior when they're time crunched and resource crunched. Or they've got MarTech that's just not fit for purpose. So it's that balance of using the right MarTech in the right way. If you throw the wrong things at the problem, you're not going to achieve your goals. So when you're thinking about your MarTech, you need to be thinking about systems that are going to tie back to business outcomes and tie back to value. And ask yourself that question, how is this going to empower me to engage better with my customers over time? And if the technology meets those criteria, then you should be embracing it. Guys, we know that technology is going to be huge in your respective brands. Joe, let's come to you. How does that shine with your experiences for Kellogg's? I mean, how important is this technology to you as a business? Well, I mean, I can tell I'm really going to enjoy this conversation. I've got so many reflections on what Sheka and, you know, what was discussed there. I love that quote about um, luxury has become hygiene. Look, I mean, so we've learned that our approach needs to be tailored accordingly based on our product inventory, which is generally split into three portfolios, cereal, cereal snacks, and, uh, and salty snacking. And I think that's kind of the governing and driving principle of where technology can help us. I think you know, we go off in so many different kind of directions here, but specifically thinking about MarTech, for us at the moment, so obviously as a supplier, we don't we generally conduct our business through retail partner platforms. So through the likes of Dunhumby, we can obviously target segments and consumers with specific offerings and messaging based on what we know they're looking for. But we do generally tend to not own that direct relationship with the consumers, so to speak, not just yet anyway. So for us and you know fantastic comments there about saving time. I think that's really, really true and often not the sexiest element of MarTech, but it's, it's the reality, right? Resource and allowing technology to do our jobs or do elements of our jobs for us is, is critically important. For us, I mean, we do have a direct consumer roadmap, which is in its infant stages at present. I have had some involvement on our first launch there. It is fascinating to see the potential to create a curated user experience once you have your own platform and more visibility on the user journey. Right now for us, and my role specifically, MarTech would generally cover, as discussed, the tools that we'd use to create and syndicate content. And then secondly, the ability to measure how that content performs on our retailer website. So massively ramped up our focus in these two areas last year. In the UK, we created a culture of tracking and detail our digital shelf health. From share of search 
to content compliance, ratings and reviews health, the ability to centralize this data into one reporting model via one platform completely opened up a kind of range of possibilities for us to engage broader business stakeholders on the channel throughout the org chart. So if you imagine we've got eight or nine top retailers in the UK that we sell through their online platforms, actually pulling our share of search for each of those retailers into one platform that we can analyze and view and contrast. That's incredibly difficult to do without a tool that does this for us. And it really opened our eyes. And they're quite difficult to maintain. And you have to ensure that the data that you put in and the tracking of the right products is is up to date. But once we had that view, it completely revolutionized the way that we could report and evaluate the work that we're doing. Ratings and reviews specifically, so how consumers rate and rank our products. We can use the reports to inform our innovation teams in real time on how the qualitative and quantitative consumer feedback that's coming on the back of new products that we've launched, which is incredibly useful, often quite difficult for companies like us to get. And then share of voice tracking, which is the other one I wanted to focus on. Again, historically challenging. How can we ensure that we are sufficient at retailer level per initiative in terms of our share of voice versus our competition. We're now able to see a breakdown of the media placements that we've got by vehicle for both our own and our competitor media placements on the channel. This was a real eye-opener for us in that we basically saw, as an example, that within some retailers, our investment into media placements was very scattered across a variety of different sections and parts of the website, whereas our competition had significantly different patterns to to our own. So, you know, how insightful for us as a business to view the various strategic priorities across our competitive set, you know, really insightful to help us understand where our investment's working and potentially save resource and focus our investment into the channels that we know are working. So it's been revolutionary and there's a long way to go. But yeah, it's it's the future for sure. Some great comments there, Joe. Thank you very much for that. Sarah, maybe I could just turn back to you now. Um, Joe was speaking about engagement, real-time engagement with customers. What does that actually mean? And what does that enable you to do once you've grasped it? And it's a tricky thing to grasp, actually. And I think, I think that came across as, as Joe was talking about it. We often think about real-time as just simply reaching people at, at the right moment, Right. But it's not quite that straightforward because you also need to engage these people, not just the right time, but through the right channel, because we live in an omni-channel world, right? What is the channel that a customer wants to engage with you? And what's the content that they want to consume? What's going to delight them? So it's not just about catching them at the moment. You need a true one-to-one experience, a one-to-one engagement, a connection, a human-to-human connection with all of those pieces pulled into it. And I think Joe hit on exactly as I was sitting there listening to it, the thing that drives all that, it's data. You need to unify that data. You've got to have it connected. If you have that wonderful 360 degree view of the customer, you're going to be able to power that data for those connections. And that goes actually straight back to one of the points that Shakar made earlier about customers expecting that as they move from online to offline store, that they can find the same things and that they expect you to know their data and recognize you as the same customer. That's what that's about. So you need the data. But then back to our MarTech discussion, you've got to have software that's going to allow you to adapt to those customer preferences across the channels and get those right messages across at the right time with the right content when your customer wants it. Brilliant. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, we'll come back to data in a second. I just What I'd be keen to know is we're talking about um, omni-channel and all these different touch points for consumers. Joe and Shaka, maybe Shaka, we'll start with you. How would you define your customer journey at the minute? And how much has that changed in recent times? 
customer journey has gone through a tremendous transformation so just just taking spar as an example right we all we had offline stores and the, the journey was such that they entered the offline store they shopped and they checked out right and we had a humongous turn of data at the database at the back end literally outlining the last purchase of the customer but now with online and with the martech tools which sara pointed out you have need to have martech tools at the right place and at the right time and the right martech tool as well to analyze data you really know what customer is clicking you know from which area your customer is going what is popular in that area and the beauty of it is that through collated databases that we have in in through which we run the marketing channels you really filter out the insights tweak your marketing campaign and as joe said you have live data in front of you and live results in front of you so basically that means all the ab testing that you really do bears fruit immediately you are able to adapt more quickly and at the same time you are more cost effective secondly another major chunk which has happened especially post online taking off is offline marketing and online marketing are kind of complementing each other sara told right now that you know the marketing budgets have been cut down but in india specifically if you talk about the offline space that's largely true but if you talk about the online space it has shot up by 80% and they are complementing each other in a way in which offline business really is used to have online activations of the customer to form a long term relationship and online business is used to drive the customers to the stores so they are really complementing each other and at the end of the day what you have is an architectural brand wherein customer identifies the brand and that brand is communicating communicating the same thing offline as well as online the third point is around the data and data is the king so if you, if if you have data of the customer you are able to target right you are able to reach them with the right products you are you are able to be more specific to convert a customer to a final transaction and you exactly know what is bothering the customer if the customer is you know is waiting at the checkout or is he just browsing between multiple categories and you exactly know the data so that you can pitch him that softly and then eventually turn that into a converted customer so these are the three levers i think which has shown significant change specifically in this transition from offline to online Let's talk about data then, because it's something that um, you know drives everything that we're talking about today. As Sarah has mentioned, Sarah, if I can come back to you, consumer privacy and data responsibility—they're huge topics right now, aren't they? So, how can brands convince customers that it's that it's worth sharing their data? Yeah, and not just their data, but their but the first party data, right? That's what the crux of the argument is around, and 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 the crux of the pain that that many marketers are feeling. And I think it boils down to something actually. quite simple. Marketers have to think about acquiring first party data from their customers as a value exchange. You have to have some give and take. And that means sometimes and I think actually Shakar was alluding to this, you have to drop that transactional mindset of every interaction with your customer is going to is going to result in a transaction. Sometimes it's just about building the relationship, right? That each engagement, each interaction is building up to an overall relationship. Some of those are going to be transactional in nature and some of them aren't. And that means you need to think a little bit more holistically about what you're doing online. It can't just be I'm going to sell you something today. You can think about loyalty schemes. You can think about VIP access, building clubs and communities. Really trying to give your customers every excuse to engage in a positive way with your brand and of course for every engagement along the way to share a little piece of data that helps you as a brand know your customer better 
and then market to them and provide the right details better. And to go back to something I touched on earlier, all along that, you're no longer just acting as a marketer. You're actually providing experiences that are memorable. You're building that customer experience. And in the end, that's not just actually going to be about building data for you. It's actually going to be about building customer loyalty. And in the current world, customer retention is also becoming more and more important. So this is a way that you actually are thinking about building that customer retention by building that relationship, by making it more and more likely that your customer is going to come back to you over and over to you as a brand because they feel that connection with you rather than shopping perhaps just based on price. Joe, maybe you'd like to come in on this now as well, just to speak about you know Kellogg's and, and data. How important is the data that you collect in terms of retaining your customers? And do you have an eye about how responsibly you use this data? I guess the lens that I take is kind of related to what I said before. So generally speaking with Kellogg's, obviously, whilst we do have a direct consumer roadmap, our uh, use of data does have to come through our customers at the moment in terms of where our heartland econ business lies, you know, with our big retailers in Europe. So I kind of look at a hybrid of what Sheka and, um, and Sarah were talking about. So broadly speaking, and we talked about investment today, we've generally seen that the Kellogg's business is bought into over-investing on e-commerce and seeing it as the future. So we're potentially seeing an increase, slight increase on investment into the channel at European level and year on year, which is great. But as the online space grows arms and legs, naturally kind of linked to what everything that's been said, the number of options available for us as a supplier to invest into is increasing every day. Reality is there's probably far too many for us to take advantage of every single one up front. And we want to be smarter with that investment, you know, making hay while the sun shines, I guess, you know, whilst we've got this big investment from the business, how do we make the most out of it? Instead of just, as I said before, scattering our investment across everything and and hoping that it all sticks. So I guess we have to be smart. And then that manifests itself into that brand or portfolio specific strategy approach that I was mentioning before. But other elements are critical. So as an example, and perhaps most importantly, again, interesting hearing Shekhar's perspective on this, opportunities for us should only be considered if and when we're comfortable with the measurement methodology, which is available on evaluation. And that sounds like a given, but I would actually openly say that the reality is that most of our retailer platforms or a lot of our retailer platforms still have work to do to provide that right level of data to us as the third party to support our investment opportunities. And that doesn't necessarily need to be the first party data element. This is as simple as website mapping, heat mapping, allowing us the ability to do A-B testing, giving us visibility on metrics beyond just sales and conversion to help us truly understand the, the journey of the shopper. Remember, we don't own this platform, so we do rely on that visibility from the retailers. And that should be one of the major benefits of investing into the online channel, right, versus more traditional retail nature of the platforms obviously means we have the capacity to allow wide-ranging measurement. We just need to partner with them on that. And some of the retailers is one that we're working with in the UK and the wholesale space at the moment that's um, really open to this. And as a result, we're going to invest more with them because we've got visibility on the full circle. Now, having that approach isn't only critical to our growth ambition, but also to ensuring that we can make solid recommendations back to the broader business stakeholders who are starting to take more accountability for planning and executing online initiatives. 
Absolutely. Shakar, Joe threw that across to you a, a moment ago. <laughs> what do you make of what Joe was saying there? Have you, have you got a few comments? Yeah, sure. I think I agree to Joe that we have more visibility, especially the retailers have more visibility into the preferences of the customer. And we use it smartly to negotiate with the brands without, obviously, there is market research that we do and we get to know about the trends, which we generally share with the brands itself. But I think it's more about what Sarah was saying. And I look at it from that angle, um, on, on specifically the MarTech uh, engine itself. So when we are building retention, what essentially we are doing is we are building the lifetime value of the customer. And if you look at it, there are two angles to it. One is the profitability angle, which basically means that your lifetime value of a customer should be greater than the customer acquisition cost. And the second one, which is a more important one right now, is the personalization and the experience angle, right? So it's all about, as even Joe was telling that, if he's browsing something, how can you make the recommendation so perfect that it's just an aha moment for him? The first time he comes onto the website, he just finds whatever he's looking for without transgressing the boundaries of privacy and data sharing, right? So basically, I would look at it as a closed ecosystem, which is limited to the retailer and the customer for the customer to make his life easier in a space where he feels safe and he feels connected with a brand rather than being threatened with a brand. Yeah, absolutely. And all of this personalization that, that we need, in whether it's on email or whether it's on any touch points that you, that you have with your customers, means that the MarTech has to evolve, doesn't it? And has to become ever more sophisticated, as I said. And that means AI technology is pretty crucial, isn't it, Sarah? So could you give us a few words on that and, and how widespread that is in uh, marketing tools? Well, I think it's really interesting. It, it, it just comes off of what Shahar, you said. AI is just the next place to go in that conversation, right? And it's a huge topic, right? So I want to talk about AI, I think, as a way to empower marketers. And funnily enough, exactly that, Shahar, a way to empower marketers to personalize. And I think there's a surprising number of marketers out there that are scared of personalization. And I think it's because they look at this wealth of data that they have, but they can't put it to work for them. They can't segment effectively. They can't act on the data as quickly, even sometimes perhaps as it's coming in. And AI in, a, in MarTech and in marketing is, a, is just an amazing tool at this point. It can do the heavy lifting for you. It, think about it. We like to think about it as adding a whole other team to your department. There's this, this wonderful virtual team that's doing all of this for you. Be your customer analyst. Do the segmentation for you, that real-time one-to-one marketer that you need. And it's going to take so much of the guesswork and the uncertainty out of it and help you to predict what your customers are going to do, but in a way that's going to leave those customers feeling good about the brand. And I think Shahar's point was absolutely on point there. There's a balance of personalization. There's a balance of using that data. And I think AI helps you achieve that balance so that the customer feels warm about the relationship, but they don't feel that their privacy has been infringed upon and that you're not... You know, to, to pick an old sort of literary example, you don't want to be big brother. That's not the intention of personalization. Personalization is about being the brand that's your best friend. And there is a there is a big difference there. And I really do believe AI helps you take all of the data you have incumbent on you as a retailer and, and, and allows you to do that. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. Shekhar, I guess now we're talking about AI and, and future marketing tools. You know, let, let's talk about what, what the future may hold from your perspective. You mentioned Q-commerce briefly earlier. Could, could you give us a few more words about that and the challenges that you see ahead um, for your brand? 
the journey of q commerce has been really interesting in india so let's understand first how grocery evolved right initially grocery most of the players were actually listing their categories online to drive sales then came the price war which is deep discounting to gain market share right after that came quality as a as a usp and now all of these have become hygiene the customer expects the best price the customer expects the best quality along with the best packaging the next big thing is faster delivery and that's basically what q commerce is centered around now it's a very tricky model to i would say scale primarily because of the high logistics cost involved in this area so if you look at india right now there are there are, there are few players emerging like let's say zepto there's a company called grofers which has revamped its strategy entirely to just become focused on q commerce it's now called blinkit and and why they are doing that because there's huge money from the investors into this business because they think that this can scale how do they do this it's basically a hub and spoke model wherein they have multiple hubs closer to the delivery radius and they just serve 2 to 3 kilometers radius around the hub they take approximately 2 minutes to pack and the rest 8 minutes goes into delivery what this does is that at the end of the day it creates a customer habit it creates a customer behavior it just does is it something related to to let's say convenience i would say no it's a delight right and and they just get customer hooked to the platform so that he can create that repeat so that that ltv to cac ratio builds in and apart from that they also have an opportunity to be different because it's not easy to replicate the cost the barriers to uh, to entry is really high in terms of moving to this kind of a business model the third thing is this is not happening right now but in the long run you can charge a premium for this kind of a service which a certain segment of customers would definitely be willing to pay especially in tier 1 cities if you look at it in india customers the disposable income is high and they value convenience much over that they value price so it's a catered customer segment however i see three challenges around this entire opportunity the first one definitely profitability the rental cost would be high the logistics cost is difficult to sustain along with the delivery cost and the manpower cost the second is range if you are talking about a 10 minute delivery you really need to be focused on a set of clear sku's that you feel comfortable in which can be sourced easily and which can be available on the platform always otherwise you will have stock out issues which is leading to bad customer experience and goes against your principle of offering customer convenience and the third thing as of now would be competition there's just too many players post investor money has come in into into this place into this space so i expect consolidation panning out sometime in the future and in my view there'll be just one or two big players which will eventually be left and will take the lion's share of the market along with the customers. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff and you know just a a little glimpse into the future about what we can expect from grocery in in India, you know, and beyond maybe in Europe and North America and all over the world. So thanks for that. Joe, uh, let's uh, just come back to you maybe a final word from you. What do you think about some of the things Jacko was saying about, you know, the future and what Uh, what Sarah's been saying about you know the the tools that are at our disposal now in terms of personalization to the customer and real time engagement. How do you see the future panning out for both Kellogg's and your your specific role as a marketer? Well, I mean, I, there's so many reflections on what on what Shaka has just been saying. You know, immediacy and quick commerce is one that's massively on on our roadmap. I think um, I've mentioned a couple of times, not really gone into it about the brand specific. um approach so we obviously have a portfolio mainly split by three categories being cereal obviously our heart brand 
cereal snacks and then our Pringles brand within uh, salty snacking, as we call it, although we've just got one brand in there. Just to reflect on that for a second, because it's important, I think, if you look at cereal as a category, generally quite a planned purchase, and therefore, because of the nature of online shopping, maybe over-indexes in grocery retail and the fact that people have got it in their favourites, they know that they're buying it every time as one of their big stock-up shops, whereas Pringles, which is our biggest brand, is far more impulse-driven and therefore perhaps under-indexes on e-com for the same reasons, right? Because it's you know something that people pick up when they see it on a end-of-aisle gondola in store. However, because of that impulse nature of the brand, perhaps it is more suitable to push Pringles within the quick commerce, I guess, environment and the future of the likes of in the UK. We obviously have Deliveroo and Uber Eats, and then you've got the new players that come in specifically, I think Getier and Gorilla being two of the big ones off the top of my head. We don't just take a general approach within the business to, okay, quick commerce is great. Let's get after it on every single brand. Let's think specifically about the right channel, right brand approach that we've got. And I think it was Sarah earlier who mentioned omni-channel and Kellogg's historically and traditionally obviously does try to work in an omni-channel approach. And that's one of the big messages that we're getting from the businesses. Apply an omni-channel lens as much as possible to your econ plans. But the reality is actually we, we don't necessarily think that's that's always going to be the case with our portfolio because of the different nature of the different categories. So that's kind of a key reflection that I'd add in relation to what Sheko and Sarah have said. In specific relation to MarTech and the conversations around personalization, Again, for us, it is very exciting to think about what direct consumer and owning our own platforms will mean for Kellogg's in the future. You know, the reality is that our price point is obviously much lower than kind of some of the brands that you more likely buy in, in a one-off purchase if you were targeted by an advert on a social platform. You know, the likes of Adidas and fashion retailers are obviously more likely to target and retarget and repersonalize ads based on consumer footprint on their website. But for us, obviously, that's not really the case. No one's going to buy a one-off tube of Pringles having seen an advert from a Pringles.com website. They're actually going to pay more for delivery than they will for the actual tube itself. So that raises a couple of interesting questions around our supply chain and portfolio. Can we start to create new formats of packs, multi-packs, maybe even personalization and paying a premium for that personalization experience? Can we bring out new personalized flavors, you know, and special artwork and limited edition packs with your name on it for people's birthdays and Christmas, which is where I think a lot of FMCG brands have gone with um, D2C in the past and all of the other kind of opportunities that come with that. When we have our own D2C platforms and when we look to explore our existing brands within these platforms, these are all the questions that will come up. And then, yes, the likes of Clavio and other kind of CRM platforms and tools that allow us to tailor our messaging and engage consumers throughout the day and throughout the year and based on what we know they're going to be looking for. And, you know, we work in food, obviously. So a lot of our marketing is based on occasions and seasonal triggers. Football competitions, for example, and at Christmas, the two big occasions when we really sell so many tubes of Pringles that you wouldn't believe. So how do we tailor our marketing, tailor our content? And also, I think, talk about above and below the line, perhaps blend the line of the two. So historically with Kellogg's, we've kind of, I think, separated above and below the line communication and kept them quite separate in terms of stakeholders and org structure in the business. But e-com, I think, represents the opportunity to, to go between. So can we target people with above the line marketing and content with an actual shoppable um, link within it? 
think that's kind of the next step for us. And obviously, technology will be critical to helping us achieve that and deliver it. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, yeah, I think what you've demonstrated there is this situation is incredibly complex. But as Sarah's told us, we do have the, the marketing tools available to us to be able to solve a lot of these problems and issues. Sarah, maybe the last word to you. How excited are you by the role that MarTech can play in this future of the marketplace? Well, I live and breathe MarTech, and I have done for a number of years. I'm I'm not going to admit how many, but I'm constantly excited by how it evolves and how the market is evolving. And for all of the challenges that the last two years have brought us, one of the exciting things has been to watch how the online digital has completely changed and how it's changing businesses. You know, Joe's just talked a lot about how that is, Kellogg's is changing as a business, it's changing mindsets, it's really exciting. And moving in ways to change their business that are going to rely really heavily on on the data we've talked about, but absolutely on marketing technology that's going to allow you to have those interactions and take the above the line, below the line, face-to-face interactions and make those as mimic them as much as possible in a digital experience. And I just find that endlessly exciting. And I think for every cycle that we go through, there's another way of thinking about using the data. There's a new channel that we have to communicate, a different way of chatting with our customers. And the exciting thing is to bring the innovation to that and to bring the innovation to our engagements with our customers. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. It's going to be fascinating to see how this all develops in the in the coming years. Listen, we could chat all day about these issues, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you all so much. A big thank you to my guests, Joe Harper, Shekhar Sharan Mishra, and Sarah Richter from Imarsis. Thank you all so much. If you'd like some further reading on some of the topics we've covered today, let me point you towards the IDC white paper, Accelerate Business Outcomes with MarTech Optimization and Innovation. You can find that at sap.com forward slash MarTech dash innovation. We always want to hear what you think. So if you'd like to contribute to the discussion, you can do so in all the usual places, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram. The links for these can be found at the top of the page at our website, csuitepodcast.com. You can also catch up with all of our previous shows and follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a positive rating and review. Finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact forms on the website, or you can find me and the C-Suite podcast on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.